Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 37 of The Fourth Wall. I'm, of course, your host, Griffin Schiller, and this is the show where we break down the fourth wall of the film industry as we get an inside look through our conversations with industry professionals ranging from directors, writers, actors, you name it. This show is, of course, part of the Playlist Podcast Network, where you can find the rest of our amazing film and television-centric catalog. We're talking shows like Be Real, the Playlist Podcast, and so much more. Whatever your fix is, we definitely have you covered over there. I teased it last week, but today's guest is someone very special. He's arguably the name in comic book filmmaking, especially team-up comic book filmmaking. Uh, He really needs no introduction, and he's created uh, another banger for DC, and that is James Gunn. A comic book movie requires a lot of elements to fall into place. You need a special effects team, at least one compelling hero or anti-hero to rally behind for two hours, and a snappy script peppered with engaging action. However, most of all, you need a fearless and endlessly inventive director bringing all of the other pieces together. Without fail, the greatest comic book films have had extraordinary creatives at the helm, whether it be Sam Raimi with Spider-Man, Christopher Nolan with the Dark Knight trilogy, James Mangold with Logan, or James Gunn when he brought the Guardians of the Galaxy to life so successfully that the IP went from being obscure to iconic in the public eye overnight, and the titular band of misfits came right out of the gate as some of Marvel's most popular characters. Seven years later, and it looks like James Gunn has done it again with his quasi-reboot of the big screen version of DC's Suicide Squad. Putting the definitive article at the front of his title is no mistake. By extracting Harley Quinn and a handful of other characters from previous films and transplanting them into a new story with an otherwise completely blank slate cast, Gunn's latest film finally gives the enduring anti-hero franchise the explosive, violent, dark cinematic representation that it truly deserves. Set after, but also separate from 2016's Suicide Squad, the film centers on a group of inmates including Quinn, Bloodsport, played by Idris Elba, Peacemaker, played by John Cena, and King Shark, voiced by Sylvester Stallone, just to name a few. Inducted into the notorious Task Force X in exchange for reduced-slash-suspended sentences and other arrangements, the Suicide Squad are sent to a Nazi-era laboratory on Corto Maltese in order to destroy it, and find themselves in conflict with Starro, a giant alien starfish. Over the course of our conversation, we talk about how Guardians of the Galaxy was the perfect dry run for what eventually would become the Suicide Squad, how he finds dignity and empathy in the unlikeliest of places, and is able to so successfully depict heroism in 
the absurd or the written off. We talk about the characters, specifically Peacemaker, Harley Quinn, and Rick Flagg, who gets a major revamp in this film to the point where I was walking out going, wow, is Rick Flagg really my favorite character in this whole film? And during the section where we do talk about Peacemaker, we do touch on what we can sort of expect from his Peacemaker series and so much more. Uh, this was a phenomenal conversation from one of the greatest living artists uh, working in the blockbuster media today. I mean, no one is telling stories that deal with family uh, and parenthood and and empathy, yet bring genre thrills uh, to the extent that James Gunn is doing in the modern blockbuster era. He really is kind of taking a page out of the book of Steven Spielberg, and I, I think it's pretty easy to see why it's worked for him very well thus far. But before we go any further, be sure to jump down in the comment section of wherever you're listening to this episode and let me know what your favorite James Gunn movie is. I happen to think that The Suicide Squad is his magnum opus, it's his masterpiece, whatever you want to call it. It is the most unabashedly James Gunn film that there's ever been, uh, and it's all the better for it. But I want to know what you all think down in the comment section below. And again, if you haven't done so already, be sure to subscribe to the Playlist Podcast Network. That way you don't miss out on future episodes of The Fourth Wall. But enough from me. Let's get into this thing. Enjoy my conversation with the great James Gunn. Uh, James, I, I had the the opportunity to attend the the press conference, and if that was if that whole just sort of like back and forth was any indication as to what the environment was like on set, I, I have to imagine this was just an absolute blast to make. It, it was. I mean, I, I I I have I generally in my past have not liked making movies. As strange as that sounds, I loved writing and storyboarding and creating the films. And I love editing movies and I have not liked shooting movies. It's just been very, very difficult. And this movie was the first movie I actually had fun making. And part of that was the cast. And part of that is because I'm getting used to it and I'm sleeping better and I'm doing all these things to take better care of myself. But yeah. it was an amazingly fun and professional cast. Like a lot of times you come to a movie set and somebody's over in the corner, like memorizing their lines, reading their lines before you start shooting. And yeah. you go, Oh, I'm gonna have to deal with this now. So you gotta shoot <laughs> it and they, they gotta kinda remember their lines while yeah, they're yeah, while they're yeah. shooting and there's none of that. Everybody came in just completely prepared. Perfect. Well that's I mean that that's great to hear. Well that's so interesting that you've always that you've traditionally struggled with the, the shooting process because um I was just doing a little uh, bit of research beforehand and, and I read that like if you were to you know going on from here, you really wanna stick to more blockbuster, like massive scale films which you know the, the shooting part is such a i mean that is it's it's integral in every film but especially in you know a movie that has like a massive budget behind it like that is like you are constantly on the clock and so i'm kind of curious just sort of about that and how maybe your philosophy has sort of changed there well i i think that bigger movies are actually easier to shoot the only thing that's more difficult about a bigger movie is the fact that you're shooting for a longer period of time so you have to pace yourself but shooting a movie like Super, which I've shot for, you know, I shot, you know, whatever, 24 days for $3 yeah. million. That was a very difficult experience. That's like, you know, doing 54 setups a day, just nonstop moving. And you really do have to worry on those days. Going over one day means a lot of money to the production. Yeah. To, a, to a movie like this, if I do go over, it's okay. Nobody cares. You know, I don't, I never, almost never go over. So the few days that I do go over, it's it's who cares. 
Interesting. Okay, that's 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 cool to sort of hear about. Um, so I want to. This is probably going to be a little bit of a deep question here, but I I really think that it's important because it gets to the heart of your film. And I think what separates this version of the Suicide Squad from previous versions is your your emphasis on this question that is is everybody even sort of the worst of the worst? These these band of criminals are they redeemable? And so I sort of want to pose that question to you and sort of like how you feel about that. Well, you know, I believe in the dignity of human beings. I believe in that there's worth to every human life. And um, and so I come into that filmmaking with that belief. And I think that this is a story about, a you know, a bunch of... The thing that I really loved about Ostrander's original series is it was Black Ops books, you know, about these characters who were being used by the government because they were considered disposable and that no one would miss them if they died and no one would make a fuss if they were killed in the line of action mm-hmm. for used on missions where they were most likely going to die. And that's what this, that's, that's the central like idea I took from John Ostrander's original suicide squad books into this movie. And so that's what interested me about it from the very beginning. And I do think that, you know, human life is sacred. And I think that that shines in, in the movie. Um, and it seems to be something that people are surprised by because it is so fun. It is so over the top. It is so yeah. violent and so bloody, but there are characters that we really connect to and who connect to each other, but not everybody in the movie is able to connect. I mean, there, there, there's a lot of loss here. There's a lot of people who are not able to connect because of their time is cut short or because they just aren't able to, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's, you know, one of the things it's like some of these characters are redeemable and some of them are pretty close to being irredeemable. Well, and, and I think that's interesting. And I think you see that in the handling of the deaths in the film and, and sort of like the, the trajectory uh, of them. But I think that's what, what you're sort of uh, touching on there. That's really distinct to you as a storyteller sort of across your entire filmography is like y- you're, the way you explore the dichotomy between like cynicism and sentimentality, beautiful images mixed with like grotesque. Um, it, it's a... I think some people might feel feel like it's abrasive, but I think it's a very human thing. And I'm sort of curious if that willingness to explore some of the the nastier sides of humanity is why those, you know, these sincere moments in a film like this, especially why they land. Yeah, I think that is. I think that's why I think it works in this movie, especially. And I also think the explosions work when you have characters who you're connecting to. But I think what separates this movie in a lot of ways from the Guardians of the Galaxy is that when we go in with those main guardians at the beginning, we know that those are all, they're probably good guys. In the first movie, when Rocket uh, is gonna says he's going to shoot Drax's face off, we don't think that maybe, you know, Rocket is really, we're not going to see Drax's face get shot off two seconds later. Yeah. However, in this movie, when a character says that they might kill another person, they might, and in fact, they do in this movie. So we don't really know who is going to end up showing some heart at the end. We don't know who's going to die. We don't know who's going to live. And it is exactly those stakes that make it so exciting for me to tell this story because it does make it scarier when you don't know what's going to happen. Right. Yeah. And and I think, you know, without, without giving anything away, I think that 
element is why you're able to sort of sub- subvert what how audiences think this whole thing is playing out when you get to that third act uh, and you touch on a, a lot of really just like important uh, and um, you know universal political and themes dealing with our country and like the treatment of uh, people who are like in career military or people who are these um, you know basically the bureaucracy incarnate if you will um, and so I kind of want to go back to the aesthetic and sort of like the origin of this story. You were talking about like the, the black ops origin of this team. I, I you know, you, you've mentioned how the Dirty Dozen is definitely um, a, uh, you, you know, something that you referenced for this film. But I, I couldn't help but go back to a lot of the Vietnam War uh, movies and the kind of themes that they were touching on. And, and so I'm curious for you, outside of like the visual palette, was there something more subtextual to those films that you wanted to draw from? Um, I watched a lot of war movies before I made this. And, and in all honesty, I've watched Vietnam war movies, but I did watch more World War World War II war movies because oh, of interesting. the sort of aesthetics, you know, you know, where where Eagles Dare was another big one. Because it, at the heart of it, it is an action adventure story. Yeah, and right, right. It's just that we we kind of run into some political themes because of what's happening and why the Suicide Squad is is sent there and you know, they have to deal with those political themes. And um, unlike a lot of movies, I don't think, you know, maybe maybe my my political ideals as a filmmaker are present, but I don't know if that's true. I think I, I see what the different characters, how each of them look at the situation and why. And I understand it. Um, yeah. You know, on, on the, the people, you know, there's a couple of really nasty characters, you know, Joaquin right. Casio's character, uh, Suarez and, and is, is a bad, he's a, he's a pretty bad apple. And in a lot of ways, Amanda Waller's a bad apple. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but even still, I understand, you know, where each of them are coming from. And I think that as a writer and a director, having compassion for each of their, those characters, even the characters that are considered villains is, is important. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that um, it, it was more the the idea of creating this action adventure thing with shitty superheroes. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, I, I kind of want to touch on some of those characters that you uh, you know that you, that you got to to write for and whatnot. Obviously, you had a lot of fun writing for Peacemaker because he's getting his own series and and whatnot. Um, what what for you was the most entertaining part about writing for for a character like Peacemaker? Because I mean. I, I could tell, but it was just like he had by far some of the best lines in the entire film. Yeah. Well, I think one of the reasons like why the Peacemaker series, and this isn't answering your question at all, but one of the reasons why the Peacemaker series exists is because there came a certain point where Peacemaker shows some emotion, you know, mm. and one of the, you know, I, I found out very early on that John Cena is incredibly funny guy. Um, he's very humorous. But when I saw this other side of his acting, this, this sort of soul and spirit that he has, that he lets you in a vulnerability to that character, that's what actually drove me to create the, the Peacemaker series, was mm. being able to see that side of the character, which we don't see very much of in the movie, unlike we see a polka dot man of blood sport, even Harley, you know, we see that side of them. And so I wanted to give him a little bit more of an opportunity to do that. Um, and with that, I've forgotten what your actual initial question was. No, oh. it would. Or, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. No, no. What you say? Uh, I was just going to say more of just like the, the enjoyment. Like, why did you like writing for that character so oh. much? Yeah. Well, I think I love writing for him because he's just he is sort of a unique character. I didn't feel like I've written Peacemaker before. He's this alt-right 
douchebag that really believes in what he's doing, yeah. you know? Um, and as we, you know, we'll find out he's also this incredibly sexually debauched guy. He's not like he's a wilting, you know, flower in the corner mm. that is just straight ahead, you know, God and country. He's a little bit more complex than that. He's got some issues that he has to deal with. A lot of which is what John brought to the character. So, yeah, yeah, yeah that, that's what excited me about him. But all the characters were really fun. If I'm not having fun writing a character and, and really finding their voice, I'll cut them out of the script. I won't put them in there. So every character had to have a fun voice for me. Right, right, for sure. I, to to the characters, especially especially sort of continuing on from that, that I really uh, thought thought you did great service to was a, especially Rick Flag, who I I I did not expect to walk away loving yeah. Rick Flag as much as I did, but I came out like he was so compelling. Uh, the this sort of self realization of where he fits in the chain of command. Um, I, I wonder if you could maybe talk a little bit about Rick and and why yeah. how you wanted to beef him up a little bit. Yeah, I, I mean, I think Joel and I went into it with saying, we're going to just recreate this character for whoever he should be, and we're not going to be stuck to anything. And, and Joel's an actor I've liked a lot since The Killing, so I was excited to work with him. And then we found out that we just, we, we're buddies, you know, we, we get along as human beings. Um, so I, I think that giving Rick, Rick Flagg can so easily be that character that goes under the radar, because you got a guy with a toilet seat, you got a glowing wand girl who controls Raj. You got a guy with polka dot pustules all over his face. Mm -hmm. And then we have the guy who was in a yellow t-shirt. And it's like, how can you make that guy compelling? And how can we fall in love with that character just as, as much as everybody else? You know, you always have these straight characters in superhero movies who don't get any love. And it's exciting for me to see Rick and Joel getting a lot of love as, as people see this movie because he is one of the few characters in the movie who has good intentions mm -hmm. and seeing that play out. I think we, we sort of fall in love with him. He doesn't have, he's not as like holy or innocent as Ratcatcher two is, but he's can, it's even, he's more admirable than that because he's kept on to his beliefs despite kind of being through a lot with those beliefs and working yeah. The government for a long time and still having these ideals that he somehow held on to perhaps because of his own denial about things so playing with all of that but also giving joel a a, a chance to do you know comedic stuff which is very very new for him and he was very pliable and and, and willing to do anything and do things a thousand times to try to get it right and that was that was that was enjoyable for me to see him growing in that way. Yeah, for sure. I, he's he's always been an actor that I feel like doesn't get enough credit, and so it was great to sort of see him in a role uh, like this. And you know, without giving anything away, the altercation that he has at the end was that was so poetic. I, I really really yeah. enjoyed that. Yeah. Um, the the other character that you sort of uh, that that I really resonated or that I thought you did a great job of. Um, you know, writing for was uh, was Harley because it feels like the natural continuation of where we saw her from in Birds of, of Prey, and I, I thought you really placed the spotlight on her sort of rebellious, uh, you know, anti-establishment like kind of uh, aura that she has around her. I mean, she's yeah. specifically being courted for being for her like anti-American fervor. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm sort of curious: do, do you think that's the kind of hero, like someone who's unafraid to speak their mind and sort of challenges the status quo? Do you think that's the kind of hero that we need in this this current era? 
No, I actually think Harley would be a terrible hero to have in real life. I mean, I love, I love Harley. Yeah, I love her as a character, but she is the trickster. She's chaos personified, and she's crazy. Um, and so we get to see her grow a little bit in this this movie. We get mm. to see her making some quote unquote healthy choices that to her are very healthy. But if that was a real person, they certainly wouldn't be that healthy. They're just healthy in comparison to who Harley is and where she's coming from. We get to see her show a little bit more humanity in certain ways that she hasn't seen before and that we haven't seen from her. And I, and I like that, you know, but she's still a trickster at the end of the day. She's still a, a you know, quite, a, a, you know, she could do anything. Right, right. She was incredibly uh, fun to write for. And I love the character. And so writing for her was just a joy. Um, and working with Margot was even more of a joy because she really can't do anything except for sing. <laughs> for sure. Um, I do got to start wrapping it up here, but I, I do kind of want to continue on from that, that Harley thing. And uh, I mean, I, I read that you view Harley as someone who belongs up on the wall with like the great superhero icons. And I, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, and I think what's interesting is you really haven't seen a character like that in like the last 30 years take off the same way she has. Um, and I'm so I, I'm kind of curious, why, why do you think Harley Quinn sort of defied the odds after all these years, after becoming like a fan favorite through, you know, a well-written but still like a kid's show? Um, yeah. And then is also one of those few characters from the 90s that really like pushed through. I think she's just completely unique. I mean, I think there's nobody like her. And I think she happened to, you know, uh, she happened to, to come about at a time when women uh, characters were being written and allowed to have a personality. Um, I think that a lot of uh, comic book characters from before, before that time, you know, listen, Peace, you know, Peter Parker can be allowed to be this mealy mouth, like, you know, getting upset about all his personal dramas and things. And that's part of what makes him so great. You know, the Bruce Banner is haunted by being the Hulk and Batman is haunted by the death of his parents and, being able to have Harley, who's even crazier than all of those people combined, but she has a very distinct personality. She is the trickster. She's also sort of, you know, gullible in her own way. That makes makes her a strange sort of innocent for someone who's a murderer. Um, so I think she's just a really interesting character. She's not good. She's not bad. She's just where she is, and she's unapologetically Harley. Yeah. I, and and I love that about her. And I and I think that's why I loved your interpretation uh, of the character so much. But uh, I do have to go. Listen, James, thank you so much for your time. I love, loved, loved this film. I can't wait to watch this thing on repeat. It is. Uh, <laughs> it's Thanks, it's so good. So thank really you. Thank it. you. Yeah. Take, take care. care.